Hi everyone. So we're going to look at um, Genesis chapter 3, second half today. Last week as we looked at the anatomy of the fall, I think uh, one thing that I wanted to re-emphasize is a strange definition of sin. Sin is uh, not so much the traditional conventionally defined like immoralities like adultery, murder, you know, bullying, violence. Like it is that. But Genesis chapter 3, this chapter that deals with the origin of all sin, it says the origin, the fountainhead of sin, is not moral at all. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. In other words, it's mainly a relational rejection of God as God. It's man's self-assertion that I am the master of my own life, and I reject God's right to determine my boundaries. So that's at the result of sin. Uh, strife, envy, murder, oppression, all of these are uh, things that naturally follow as an outgrowth of that core assertion, that rejection of God and that assertion, I am my own master. And then I think we ended the uh, last week uh, by looking at humanity's response to sin. And one of the first responses was hiding, shame, trying to cover up like the sense of I've done something wrong and they spring to action in response to their shame and they try to cover up for their uh, for their shame. And then we'll pick up from verse 9 then uh, of Genesis chapter 3. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, shame, that's where we ended last week. Now we get blame, like a close cousin of shame. Adam blames Eve. Like, the woman gave it to me, and let's not forget who gave me the woman. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave. Uh, he, and then Eve turns around and blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me. It's all true, but like only partially, right? Like, no, I ate it. Like, that would be um, the, the, the right response. And yet, Adam seems to want to talk about this other thing. The woman whom you gave me. Um, blame, like what an escape blame is, like what an amazing thing it is. It's like magic, you know, it gives you an out. It shifts responsibility, it deflects guilt, uh, and then it salvages your self-esteem. Um, it's amazing. Uh, things are always someone else's fault or the fault of biology. You know, my genes, my upbringing, my parents, society. Uh, this chapter suggests that this blame arising out of shame, this dynamic, um, is at the core of human response to sin. In other words, instead of like admitting, yeah, I'm a sinner, and, and dealing with that in a word that the Bible calls repentance, um, we do the shame and blame thing. I did something, I'm ashamed, and so I blame others and circumstances as a way to soothe the sting uh, of my shame. But the problem is, it's false. It's false. And if you're blaming people, it could really be hurtful to those people. I read an article recently about this epidemic of like disowning parents. You know, young people saying my parents are uh, toxic, harmful, uh, not safe to be around. Uh, they trigger me and things like that. And 
for the most part, the parents are utterly baffled. Um, yeah, so blaming people for uh, my deficiencies or my lack or uh, the way things aren't going well for me, it could be very hurtful to the people who are being blamed. It's actually turns out to be self-damaging as well in that blaming keeps you sort of infantile and it turns you into this helpless object that is always being acted upon. And I think um, our society keeps encouraging this. Like if you come up with a victim narrative, then it makes you almost like a, a, a moral saint or something. It, it, it gives you rights and status in some way. Um, and I think it's really uh, toxic and deadly to the development of our souls and the development of maturity uh, to keep victim posturing this message. Like it's not your fault. It's everyone else's. Like we need to see it for what it is and, and, and reject it entirely. Um, look, life is imperfect. Like it's imperfect. Um, th there isn't a thing in the world uh, that's ideal. Um, your parents, your teachers, our society, the authority figures and all of our, our institutions, all flawed, uh, all broken in some way, and therefore they all do wrong. Um, so there's plenty of blame to go around and it's easy to just point the finger and say like everyone's done you wrong, like everyone's corrupt, power hungry, oppressive, you know, uncaring or whatever. And that might all be true. And that might be the story we end up telling a victim blame story. And it's a story that absolves me of guilt, but you know what it may end up doing? It may actually end up dissolving you of your sense of self because you end up leaving very little role for your own agency. Um, with all the blame story covering so much, like where is the role of you as a person who chooses and acts and decides, and, and you actually did things that is traceable to you and your decision and therefore your responsibility. And then maybe, something then that you can repent of. And I think the worst part of all of this is you're depriving yourself of what the Bible calls grace. We talked about it four weeks ago, grace, like unmerited forgiveness and favor. The Christian gospel says it starts with me. It starts with me before God. I have rebelled against God. I have deposed the God of the universe from my life. And I acknowledge that this is wrong, uh, this is false, that this is rebellion, that this is sin. And the Christian gospel gives each individual this dignity, the dignity of owning uh, my moral and spiritual responsibility. And I think this whole blame thing uh, tries to interrupt that and, and, and gives you this so tempting of an out. And I really urge you, like, think that through. Think that through because it's widely practiced. We hear it all the time and we are encouraged to sort of hone this narrative and it leaves you infantile. Um, it's false and it prevents you from owning your responsibility and therefore repenting and experiencing grace. So personally for you, when you're confronted, when you're confronted with something that you've done, um, what is your typical response? When someone confronts you with something, 
that you did or didn't do or said or didn't say? Like, what is your response? For Adam, like, okay, so it's true. Like, it, it is the case that God put the woman in the garden. Like, that's not false. Uh, it's also the case that, at, like, Eve offered Adam some of the fruit. But what else was true? What else was true? Well, namely that he took it and ate it. Like, that's the gigantic truth. Um, what if Adam dropped his defenses, uh, didn't blame, didn't point out the true but, like, not all that relevant fact that God already knows, and those three words, I ate it, I ate it. Like that gigantic truth is what he started out with. I ate it. I could have told Eve, no way. I could have thrown the fruit into the, the river. Like, I, like he could have, should have. And so by putting up all of these blaming defenses, he's actually pushing truth away and therefore pushing God away. Think about a man who commits adultery. I'm sure in every such story, there are circumstances. Like, like he didn't set out say, I'm going to commit adultery. Like something happened, a business trip, a, a stress, um, strife, uh, and, and, a, and a low point in the marriage, loneliness. There was a woman, like he came to his room. But in the end, what, ha what happened? He violated his wedding vows. He crossed a huge boundary and did something awful. But what if he really believes that, I mean, I might have done that, but man, there's this story, you know, like about work and about my wife and about this woman and, and the stress. And, and then at the end of the day, like that story uh, of blame, of circumstances, is really what he ends up with. And he really feels he didn't really do anything wrong. What should he do? Admit his wrongs in, in plain words of confession. I violated my marriage vows. I wounded my wife. I destroyed my family. Uh, I forever hurt my children. I did that. And for that, I am truly, truly sorry. The sorrow of owning up to something like that. What's the alternative? That's to deny my sin, to point to everything and thereby um, erase myself out of the picture. All relational growth and spiritual growth begins with owning your responsibility for your sins. Can we dialogue about what happened? Can we dialogue about what I did? Can I drop the blaming Stop citing the mitigating circumstances and simply admit in my relationship with people, in my relationship before God. That's the Christian idea of repentance. Have you ever repented? Have you ever repented? For what? For rejecting God. For playing God in your life. Acting almost every day like he is utterly irrelevant. That you are naturally the rightful master of your own life. Have you repented of that? Because that's not right. That's not true. It starts there. Okay, and then the remainder of the chapter has to do with God's response to man's sin. And um, in verses 14 and on, God pronounces uh, judgment or he pronounces his sentence like a judge. And it's in three parts. So here's the text. 
uh, starting from verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The first word of judgment is on the serpent. Uh, the text contains actually good news for men. There's a, a reference to offspring of the woman, and all the scholars agree that this is a messianic reference to Jesus, the one who will be the offspring of the woman, who will come to bruise or crush uh, the serpent's head, uh, but he will not be unscathed. His heels will be bruised as a reference uh, to the cross and the suffering of Jesus and the prediction of his ultimate victory uh, and the defeat of the serpent. Second, there is a sentence upon the woman. Um, even in childbirth, there will be great pain. Life down to this day actually is ushered in amid great pain and the fear of death hovers just over the anticipation of new life. Sort of a tragic quality uh, to all the very best and joyful that man can achieve. But here is, I think, a, a, a more profound description of what will now become characteristic of human relationships. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Yeah, the desires will be contrary. Well, what happens when desires are contrary? When your desires and my desires and your desires and your friend's desires, your parents' desires, they're, they're in conflict. What happens? Well, there's a power struggle. And it says, he shall rule over you. Um, first, notice that the rule of the husband uh, is not part of the original plan of God. Is actually a kind of the, the 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 judgment or the result of man's fallenness. Um, but in this in this description of the subjection of women, there's also kind of a reference to the whole logic of domination and oppression that will characterize a sad history of humanity from this point on. It's all about power and ascendancy and struggle to dominate and oppress. Eventually, the gospel will come, and this cycle of domination and oppression uh, will give way to mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5, is the uh, ethic of human relating, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the first part uh, of God's sentencing of man has to do with the spiritual realm, the struggles which were set in motion by the fall of man uh, and the promise of a future deliverer, a savior, the offspring of the woman. The second part has to do with um, the horizontal plane of human relationships, this issue of struggle or getting along uh, with our fellow man and the, and, and the themes of uh, domination and of love. 
Now the third sentence, and uh, this is the longest one. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face shall you eat bread. Notice that the curse on the man has to do with work. Like it's no worth noting here that um, for women, pain centers around uh, the issues of love and relationships. And for men, the pain centers around work. And I think to this day, um, these are sort of the, the characteristic struggles of men and women. I think women struggle with uh, relationship issues. And even if they're successful career women, uh, find their relational world the most significant. And men, even if they're relationally fulfilled, uh, all of their struggles and pains will center around work and trying to derive significance. Somebody said female issues tend to center around relational security, whereas men's issues tend to center around significance that they find through achievement. Now, to be sure, these are stereotypes, but I think they're pretty deeply rooted as well. Now back to um, this interesting phrase, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. Um, in Romans chapter 8, we read these really curious words that echo this statement, cursed is the ground because of you. Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What does it mean that the whole creation has been groaning? right up to the present time. What does it mean? What does it mean that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth? I think it's describing the, the fall of creation itself. Cursed is the ground because of you. Creation which was once compliant to man now is in rebellion. Like this chain of rebellions culminates then in man's own body rebelling and returning to chaos, men succumbing to decay. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. In other words, our mortality, our bodies falling apart, time uh, taking its toll on everyone. So profound changes happen after Adam and Eve's sin. Changes to the external world, you know, to the ground, to the objective world out there creation becomes abnormal. What does this mean? I think one thing this means is that sin is rarely an isolated act which affects just one aspect of life or one person. Sin curses the ground. Like it, it poisons everyone around the sin and it poisons the very soil. Nature itself undergoes upheaval because of human sin. See, sin's not some isolated act because we're all connected. We're connected to one another. We're connected to God. And it's sort of like carelessly pouring toxin into a mountain stream, thereby poisoning all the water that's downstream. In other words, the far-reaching consequences of sin. Like it's really important that we see this, that we really get this. A father after 15 years of marriage and children commits adultery. What happens? Is that sin isolated? Does it simply ruin that day, uh, the day of the adultery, or is only sexuality affected? No, 
everything's affected. It all comes to ruin. All his relationships, all his friendships, his extended family, his children, his, his identity and role as a father, a spouse, a man, his view of himself, his self-respect, his ability to resist other sins. What about the wife? Is it just like shocking news? No, it's like the ground sinks beneath her. All of reality starts to warp, torque, and give away. Like this ground that she thought she was standing on. She thought she knew what life was. She thought she knew uh, who this person was. And none of it's true anymore. Like something deep within, like an inner sanctuary begins to crumble. And darkness seeps in through the cracks, affecting everybody. So, sin, no, it's not isolated. Every sin poisons the well of your soul and weakens the bonds of love and trust all around. Let's say you utter a lie and then you worry if others um, bought it. You need to tell more lies to cover it up and then you feel nervous. Other people are no longer welcome. They're kind of a burden some people to before whom you need to continue to keep up the charade and relationships then become tiresome and weakened and you feel more and more lonely you started out maybe just saying some lies and and carrying on some deception for some perceived advantage and yet in the end this is where it lands uh, edginess before people and a deep soul loneliness sexual promiscuity does it just affect one aspect of you it's just recreation. It's just my body. No, it affects how you see yourself, how you approach life, how you see others. Like sexual prom promiscuity. Like, are you proud of it? You're encouraged to be, but you're not. Like you sense this coarseness and lack of self-respect creeping into your soul, making you numb. The message of this text, sin is toxic and it's comprehensive. It's unbelievably profound and true. We imagine that when we do something, that we're just doing that thing. Cursed is the ground because of you, God says. No, you're not just doing that thing. You're touching the very fabric of the universe and you're soiling it. So, what are we going to do? Where, where do we go with this? To the cross, to the cross. At the end of the chapter, there's a picture of God slaying an animal and making garments of skin for Adam and Eve. And that's a foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus. No blood will be shed except it'll be by Jesus. And he beckons you to come, repent for your sins, like acknowledge it. Acknowledge not only it, but um, its magnitude, its depth, its, its cosmic rebellious aspect. And then come before the cross. And what does the cross tell you? The cross tells you your sins are this serious. Like you're taken this seriously. Like you matter this much. You are this weighty and significant. That your sins, your sins are so bad that the Son of God has to bear the cross and bleed to wash your sins away. What else does the cross tell you? That you're that loved that you're that loved, that Jesus was willing to do it. So God pronounces these judgments. Judgment is necessary. Judgment is necessary to break the pride of man, man, the unbounded one, saying, no, 
that last boundary shall be transgressed. I will be my own God, thank you very much. And judgment says, no, you are not unbound. You are bound, you are limited. You have done wrong and you have unleashed consequences that will diminish your life. And think about it, this too is grace. Without it, there will be no end to men's pride and evil. But now with toil, with relational strife, with the sad fact of our personal mortality, humanity has a chance to experience sorrow over sin, a chastened humility, and then to look to God with awe, with hope, and then to seek salvation. Death, pain, suffering, interpersonal struggles, these all have a hidden grace. If we allow these to remind us that this poor earth is not our home, then maybe we can look toward God again, restore His rightful place in our lives. All right, so let's spend a, a minute as we always do, uh, just kind of thinking over the message of Genesis chapter 3 and uh, see what applies to you. And if God is speaking to you, what is he saying? So let's spend some time thinking about that and maybe responding in prayer.